You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. As David mentioned, we're continuing our series, Cliché, and David kicked it off last week. We were uh, on the beach in South Carolina. I am tanned, rested, largely burned and rested, uh, but I'm glad to be back and excited about this series. Cliché. Cliché is defined as a phrase or opinion that is often overused and betrays a lack of the original thought. That's the definition of cliché. And tragically, that's what has happened with some of our most loved passages of Scripture. They've been used a lot, and that's good. But at times, they get misquoted. They get lifted out of the context in which they were originally written. And they get applied in ways that they were never intended to mean. And that's the idea behind this series, was to kind of reset some of these. We don't want to trivialize or misapply Scripture ever. It's our intent that we would instead know the meaning of the verse or the context of that text, that we would know the truth. So this series is an attempt to reset these frequently misused and often misapplied passages. So I'm, I'm glad to kick off the second passage we're going to look at. It's Romans 8.28, a much-loved passage. If you have your Bible you want to flip over there, we're going, to, we're going to look at that here in just a moment. Roy Mays, some of you may have heard me talk about him in the past, was a very influential person in my life. For a long time, he was my, my direct report, my boss, if you will. But most of my life, almost the entire time that I've known Roy, he was my friend. And in 1998, We were all shocked when he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a blood cancer that currently there is no cure for. Roy was diagnosed by the doctors, and at the time they told him, if you do all of the treatments, and and there there were a number of experimental things, if you do all of this, we think you could probably live another five years. And so Roy set out to fight cancer as only Roy could do. He was very intelligent and very diligent and very passionate. And he fought it and he fought it hard. He did everything medically, dietarily, emotionally, and of course spiritually that he could to fight this disease. And if you talked to him about it at the time, he would often tell you his strategy. It was pills and prayer. That was his strategy. He was going to do it all, both ends of the spectrum. And as hard as he fought... In January of 2005, cancer took his life. Um, It was an extremely sad day for the Wilkinson family. Almost seven years after his diagnosis, and he would tell you that it was bonus. Because they said if he did nothing, he would only live about six months. So after six months, I mean, everything was a bonus. If you, some of you remember the game, pinball games, it was extended play. You remember those? He was in extended play. Seven years. Roy was a man of deep faith. And he took great comfort in the confidences that he found in the messages that are found in Scripture. He loved the Bible. And one of the passages that people often turn to when they face difficult troubles, when they face very, very challenging trials, is Romans 8.28. When you face things like Monumental giants like what Roy was up against, 
you turn to a passage like Romans 8.28. It's arguably one of the favorite passages in all the book of Romans, and for many people, it's their favorite passage in all of the Bible. How often have you turned to the promise in Romans 8.28 when you were up against something significant? This verse, though, as great as it is and as powerful it is, is often quoted so often that over time it seems as though the meaning in the verse has been morphing. It's become a cliche for some. It's not uncommon to hear someone who's facing a difficult, challenging situation to say, all things work together for good. It's as if they're saying, everything's going to work out the way I want it to. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I wonder if that's really true. Because here's the, here's the reality in my world. If that were true, my friend Roy would not have died. He'd still be alive today. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to dig into this verse and explore the promise that God is making in that passage and understand who that promise is for and exactly what we can expect from it. So if you are uh, able to, I want to ask you to, to stand with me and I want you to recite this verse with me as we kind of kick open the door on it. Romans 8.28 and uh, if you are comfortable, just uh, recite this with me. Are you ready? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's do it one more time. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Thank you. You may be seated. I've, I've come up with a number of questions that I think will help us to kind of explore this passage. The first question is this. How much is included in this phrase, all things. When Paul says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good. What's included in that? Well, to determine this, we have to look at the context of this passage, which specifically included troubles and adversities of our present earthly life. If you go back to verse 18 in the, in the flow of this passage, you find the Apostle Paul writing, I consider that our present sufferings, so they're going through some difficult times, some trying times. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul's talking about the present sufferings, the stuff that they were going through right then. And what he's talking about are trials and miseries that are suffered as a result of the sins of other people. These were, these were sins that were being, that were, were happening as a result of persecution against Paul and other believers. These were not the result of Paul's own sin, necessarily. And we see a whole lot of this in our world. I mean, you think about it, from ISIS decapitating Christians in Egypt, other, other uh, other movements around the world, in the Middle East as well as in Africa, who are attacking Christians for the simple fact be that they are believers in Christ. And we're seeing ISIS attacking uh, people in Paris and London. And we've seen 
homegrown terrorists who've been influenced by this ideology here in our, in our states, in San Bernardino, California, and at a nightclub in Florida. We see this physical persecution, these present sufferings all around the world directed at Christians. But you know, it's not just physical sufferings. There are much less violent sufferings, and yet some still as painful. Christians seem to be persecuted in nearly every arena of life. I saw this, just a subtle, a subtle event that happened just recently during a confirmation hearing for a, 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 a man by the name of Russell Vaught. I, I have no idea who this man was prior to this event. And truthfully, to be honest with you, I would never have known him, probably ever, had this event not happened. Russell Vaught is the nominee for the Trump administration for Deputy Director of Office of Management and Budget. If you know who he was prior to this event, you are a government wonk, okay? And I mean that as a criticism, not as a compliment, okay? You need to get a real hobby, okay? Because if you knew who Russell Vaught was prior to this, you probably need to get out and get a little more fresh air. But here's what happened. During his confirmation, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, some of you remember he was, he was running for the presidency on the Democratic side during their nomination process, he questioned whether Vought was fit to serve in public service because of his Christian beliefs. Now this is not about Democrat or Republican. Please understand me when I say this. Senator Sanders was, has sincerely held this ideology that To have religious belief amounts to bigotry and should disqualify anyone, or at least Christians, from public service. This is an attack on my ideology, my theology, as well as yours. We all will have trouble. There will be present sufferings. And it's not just that side of the aisle. It comes from the other side periodically as well. Jesus put it this way. Now, this is, this is what we should expect. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus is saying, you're going to have trouble. I mean, if you think that they were hard on me, because of me, they will be hard on you. You're going to have present sufferings. You should expect that. So the first part of the promise that we find in Romans 8.28 is simply this. In bad things, God works for our good. In bad things, God works for our good. Now, there are two facets that I want us to look at. There's probably a lot more to this, this truth but there are two facets I want us to kind of lift out of, out of this discussion. And the first one is this. God is working when things don't work out the way we thought they would. Whose way is better? 
Is it God's way or is it your way? Which way would you say ultimately would be the right way to go or the better way to go? Your way or God's way? Think about that for a second. See, sometimes in my mind, I think I have it all figured out. Now, I'll tell you an illustration to help maybe put context to this. In 2013, we were in the process of looking to hire a worship leader. And Kevin Crump and I were part of this process. And I remember having coffee with him and Amy, Ann and I, at uh, Cozy's. And we were sitting there. And at the end of the conversation, Kevin said, oh, by the way... The guy that we thought was going to be our worship leader turned us down. He took another job in Cincinnati. You remember that? I was going on vacation the next, way, the next day. Man, I was so bummed out. And Kevin looked at me and he said, remember what our prayer was, that God would bring us his man for the job. And apparently the guy in Cincinnati is not his guy. And I was like, yeah, I hate it when he's more spiritual than me. That was right on. Kevin was right on. And so I went on vacation and four days later had a conversation with a guy by the name of Todd Ballard. What would we have missed out on had we got our way? We'd have missed out on Todd and the difference in the impact that he, w- that he has made here over the last four years. We will not see what God is up to all the time. Sometimes he's working below the waterline and we can't see it. But we can trust that he's at work there. And even when things don't turn out the way we think they should, we can have confidence if he's at work. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's at work. Even when it doesn't turn out the way we think it should, There's another facet in this part of this promise. In bad things, God works for our good. And that is that we will learn even though, even through, excuse me, evil afflictions. Psalm 119, 71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Somebody said that diamonds are formed only when there's a lot of pressure that the ultimate fragrance of a rose isn't released until the petals are crushed. We can learn God's purposes in our lives and for our lives through afflictions, even in the toughest and most difficult of times. God works in bad things for our good, but that's just one part of the promise. The other part of the promise is in good things, God works for our good. And good things, God works for our good. Not long ago, I took a mission trip to Nepal, and I visited the Bible translators who were translating the Gospel of John that we helped to fund. And some of you remember me telling you this when I got back. But when we went to to visit them, I wanted to see what $35 a verse gets you when it comes to translating a book of the Bible. I wanted to see what that looked like. And I was absolutely blown away by it. It was really one of the most moving experiences in my life. This support that we had given was fueling the work of these true servants of God. These people were so passionate for the gospel. And they were so grateful to us. They were deeply blessed by our support for what they were doing there. It was a huge blessing then as a result for me. 
to see what, as a body, we had done and the blessing it was on them. And so in the midst of good, I received God working out good in my heart and in my life. I was blessed by seeing the work that these saints were doing. They were doing the work of God. God works through good things for our good as well. So in all things, it means all things. Not just the good or the bad, but all the things in between. In every situation, God is working. He's working. And the promise that God makes here is that he will bring good out of the consequences. Excuse me, out of the circumstances in our lives. Even the most difficult of circumstances, persecution, and even death if it comes This is important. Paul's not saying that God creates or causes these circumstances, but that he does cause good to come out of them. He'll use them for his purposes. Well, there's another question I want to ask us, and that is this. What is the good toward which God directs all things? What is the good that God directs all things. And ultimately, the good is our salvation. But it's not limited to that only. It's our salvation. That is the ultimate good, but it's not limited to that only. Some troubles will produce their benefits only at the end of this life. Some of you will not know the true joy and blessing until you get to the other side But we should also recognize that there is a whole bunch of good that God produces in our present life and our future life here on this earth. The results of this good contributes toward our salvation as well as our sanctification. That's becoming more holy, more like Jesus. There's good that prompts us to grow in that way, transforming us. And then as well, it, there is good that comes as an ability to serve God and others more effectively. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you this way. A number of years ago, I went through this period of my life where I was really down. I was struggling. I went to a doctor. He said, you're depressed I, was, I battled that depression for a period of time. Could anything good come out of it? Well, in retrospect, as I look back, the good that God worked in me during that time where I was struggling was that it made me more aware and more sensitive to those who deal with depression. I realized that I kind of saw it as a weakness, not really a struggle prior to that. I didn't become an expert, but it did help me to understand And that was really good, especially in the context of ministry. God uses good for our salvation, for our sanctification, also for our ability to serve God and others more effectively. Well, there's another question I want to ask, and that is, who is this promise for? God's making a profound promise here in this verse. Who is the promise for? And there are two aspects of this person that this promise is for. It's the same person, but there are two aspects that they encompass. And the first is, is the promises for those who love God. This awesome promise is not made to all human beings. That's a bit of a surprise. Because everyone thinks that it's for everyone. 
But God qualifies it here. He said it's only for those who love God. It's for his people. We find that in the context of this text. If you go back and we read verses 27 and then into 28, we see what we're talking about here. He says, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, the Spirit intercedes for God's people. That's who he's talking about here. The Spirit working on behalf of God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul's talking about God's people here. He's talking about the people of God. And they're described as those who love God, those who love him. He's talking about Christians. This is not intended to make a distinction either between Christians who love God and Christians who don't love God, because all Christians love God. That's part of the characteristic of that believer. Instead, what Paul's doing here is he's distinguishing between Christians and unbelievers because Christians are those who love God. And that's who this promise is for. Not only is that the promise for them, but there's another aspect of this, and that is the promises for those who accept God's call. Now, these are the same These are the same person. These are not two different groups. The person who this promise is for is going to love God and also accept his call. The persons that were described here by Paul are those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, God calls all men through the gospel. This calling is for everyone. It's a universal calling. It's for all of mankind. In fact, if you look in John, the 12th chapter, verse 32, what you'll find is Jesus saying, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's for everyone. This calling, this invitation, it's for everyone. But here's the caveat. Man has free will to decide to accept the gospel but he also has the, the latitude to reject it. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. What Jesus is saying here is that they rejected him. He wanted to bring them together. He wanted them to be part of this family, but they rejected the invitation. This promise is for those who accept God's invitation. Everyone received the same call, but many have just refused to accept it. And Paul declares in this part of the passage that we have been called according to his purpose. His purpose. He's referring to God's purpose here. So what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? Well, if we stay with the context, we go into verse 29, we see that the goal is that some will be conformed to the likeness of his son. In other words, God is, he has proposed to gather together a family of believers who will love him as their heavenly father and glorify him forever. And also, so that he can love and bless his own children. But because mankind has fallen into sin, this complicated things. 
His purpose now can only be accomplished through Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of his family. Jesus is the only means of redemption possible. It's only through him that we can have this relationship. It's his purpose. So, when it comes to this passage, you read this verse, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And you want that to be true in your life, but sometimes you're not sure you can hold on to it. Let me give you what I, what I put in your notes is three ideas, but I think it's, these are tips to help you hold on to the promise of Romans 8.28. Then we'll wrap this message up. The first tip is this. Do what you can, then trust God to do what you can't. Do what you can, and then trust God to do what you can't. There are going to be times when you face giants in your life, then your own strength, you can't defeat them. But never, ever, ever forget that God is more powerful than anything else on the planet, or in the universe for that matter. I love the story of the people of Israel when they left Egypt. Do you remember? The Israelites were traveling out of Egypt, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh sent his army to chase them. His chariots are thundering across the desert floor. They can hear this roar of these, these fighting machines. And here they are, a bunch of goat herders and shepherds, and they're stopped by the Red Sea. They're pinned between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. They seem doomed. But when God is added to the equation, you become the superior, you become the majority. And in that case, God parted the Red Sea and it says they went through on dry land. I love that. It's always been my favorite Old Testament story. I love it. So a few years ago, I started this list in my prayer journal. I call them Red Sea Moments. These Red Sea Moments are just a list of times when God showed up And that was the only way you could explain it, is that if this, if God hadn't shown up, this would not have happened. But because he did, this happened. And one of those happened on May the 13th, 2013. And I I promise you, probably no one in here knows this, except for maybe two or three people, one of which I know isn't even here this weekend. But this happened. This was an amazing thing. What was happening at that time in our church is we were on the threshold of change. God was moving and doing some remarkable things. He was working here. And one of the results during that transition was that our giving dropped. Our weekly giving dropped. Now, let me, I just want to say one thing here about that. I want to thank those of you who give here regularly. You invest in what God is doing here. And I'm, and, and you need to know, I know I, I speak for not just myself, but for our staff, for our elders. We're just very grateful for your generosity. God has been working through your faithful generosity all during this time. And just, just so you know, the summer months are tough. We can, we, can, we can use more help. Don't think that, hey, they don't need me because look at the building. It's great. They ain't paid for it, trust me. So we can use your help. Uh, just to remind you how important you are and your faithfulness, and we are grateful for that. But in the midst of that, especially that summer, man, it was tough. But before we got to the summer, before we got to the summer, on May the 13th, something happened. We were doing everything that we could. 
We were spending just what we were bringing in, and we were struggling, and we were having to trust God like we never trusted him before, which is a good thing. But on May the 13th, that year, 2013, our finance person, uh, Debbie Kilgore, explained to me that our bank, for no reason that we knew of, had dropped a fee that we had been paying every month up to that point. It was called the swap fund invoice fee. I'd never heard of it before. And it was $8,500 every month. And for some reason, the bank just decided to stop charging us that. That created enough breathing room so that we were able to continue to move forward and accomplish the things that God was calling us to do. The only explanation for that, the only explanation, we didn't negotiate that, we didn't talk to the bank about it. The only explanation was that God showed up. So do what you can and then trust him to do what you can't. The second thing, the second idea, the second tip I want to give you is if you find yourself paralyzed by worry or panic, you're consumed by the trouble that you're facing, pray and enlist others to pray with you. And pray specifically this prayer. God, please expand my faith. You know, if your faith is is this size, but you need faith this size for the challenge that you're facing, then ask God to give you a faith this size. The good that I've seen God working in my life has made me able to trust him even more. The third idea, the third tip, is adopt a heavenly perspective. Keep your eyes on the final prize. This means to keep in mind that some of the troubles that we face won't be solved in this life. They won't be solved until you arrive in heaven. John was writing about the new Jerusalem And he says in Revelation 21.4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Paul is saying, or John is saying, excuse me, that heaven is a place where there is no more trouble. There's no more suffering. There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. It is a perfect place. So persevere with this heavenly perspective, anticipating what is to come. Eternity in heaven where there is no more of this garbage that we have to deal with. This heavenly perspective became more real for me uh, the day that my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, We did everything medically for him that we could to slow down the disease. There's no cure at this point. And we prayed that God would heal him. We prayed fervently, but that was not... God's decision. The disease just continued over time to strip my dad of his memory, of his physical strength, and then probably the most troubling thing for me was to take away my dad's personal independence. He was dependent on everybody. Before my dad lost his memory, though, he and I had a conversation It was one of those moments that defined this illness for me. We talked about his relationship with Jesus. He was so, so grateful to God for his salvation. 
And the one thing that we agreed on was that no matter how this thing turned out, ultimately we knew we would be together again in heaven. And that truth gave us great hope during what would be the next several years. Horrible, horrible, horrible times. Last year when my dad died, I was actually relieved that he was no longer trapped in the suffering that he was in. Now I knew he was with the Lord. I wouldn't wish him back for anything. See, the greatest solution to the troubles that we face is to have eternity taken care of through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Accept him as your Lord and your Savior. And regardless of the troubles that you face then, you will spend eternity in heaven when this life is over. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that good, heaven eternity with God. That is the ultimate good that God has worked out for us. All we have to do is accept his invitation and to love him. And then this promise is for you. Don't miss it. Please, please don't miss it. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for your love for us. You are working in all things for our good, those of us who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, for that, we just say thank you. Lord, please um, meet our need in our moment. I know there are some here who are very faithful to you and they are hurting, they are struggling. The journey of life has been very difficult for them. Will Will you fill in the gaps, God, where they can't? Will you expand our faith so that we will trust you more? Help us to see even more of those Red Sea moments where you show up and we go, the only answer to this is that God showed up. God, we're grateful for that. And Lord, I pray for those who still yet to accept you. Holy Spirit, will you stir in them today? May they know the love that you have for them, God. And may they accept it. God, we praise you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have never taken that step of faith, I want to invite you to do that. I'll be down front. Let's stand together and worship him. Come if you have a need.